Today we're studying from uh, Matthew chapter 24, 1 through 14, but Pastor Matt asked me to read a couple of verses before that, so I'll be starting in uh, chapter 23, verse 37, and then through uh, chapter 24, verse 14. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him, privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nations will rise against nations, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the, all the nations and then the end will come, perilous times. The, the end of the world as we know it, the, the time period where at some point in the future, God is going to say, all right, that's a wrap, that's it. And God has already written down how he's going to bring about the end of this age, the end of this world as we know it. When we study the end of the world, as God has prescribed it, it's called eschatology, study of the end times. And, and that topic is a little bit like a train wreck in that it's violent, it's scary, and people just can't stop looking at it. It's very interesting and fascinating to a lot of people, even though it causes a lot of anxiety. I mean, it's been the subject of countless books, movies, uh, series, and sermons like this one. The reason people are interested, what we really want to know, like if you could ask God, something about the end of the world, what would you ask? If, if he would grant you your wish and tell you what you want to know, what would you ask about the end of the world? 
I have a guess as to what's going through your mind because I think we're all fairly similar. Here's what you would want to know. Most, for the most part, we want to know when is it going to happen. We want to know what it will look like or, or how it will happen. And we want to know how we can tell if we're getting close. Jesus is going to address two of those three. It's going to take us about eight weeks to look at those and all that. If you, the only one he doesn't address, if you want to know what the end of the world will look like, the book of Revelation is your huckleberry here, not the book of Matthew. But today, we start a brand new, a very different section in the book of Matthew. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus' longest teaching about the end of the age. It's called the Olivet Discourse, I think, because that's how much of it that Jesus wanted us to read. He wanted us to read all of it. And that's why it's called either that or... Verse 3 tells us, um, I should have put a dad joke warning on that, I'm sorry. Verse 3 tells us he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's a private teaching said to his disciples. And it doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus didn't just one day say, sit down boys, we're going to talk about the end times. It comes from what, uh, what we talked about last week at the end of chapter 23, and I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. But Jesus has just made it clear that he's turning his back on Israel because Israel has turned its back on him. And like I said, God still has a plan for Israel later. But for now, Jesus has just, the last thing the disciples heard him say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, I wanted to protect you, but you wouldn't come. So... Your house is being left to you desolate. I'm going to leave you without my protection. You're not going to see me as your protector anymore until you say what the Old Testament predicts people will say when they recognize Jesus as Messiah, when Israel recognizes Jesus as Messiah. And then he sort of takes off and he's walking across the Kidron Valley up toward the Mount of Olives. And his disciples are looking at each other going, did did you hear what he just said? What do you think that meant? And so I think they want Jesus to clarify the words he just said. The house is going to be desolate. Was he talking about the temple? And did Jesus just say he's not going back to Jerusalem? Because we thought Jesus was going to be the king. And where was the king supposed to reign? From Jerusalem. Jesus just said, thought he said he's not going back there. And so to try and elicit more information from Jesus, I believe, as they're going away, the disciples come up to Jesus to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, had Jesus seen the temple before? Was this a sightseeing tour? Here's what's happening. If the temple's over here, they're crossing the Kidron Valley, they're, they're climbing the Mount of Olives, and they look back and say, hey, uh, hey, Jesus, look at the temple mount. Isn't that awesome? I think they're they're trying to get him to explain himself. Maybe they're saying something like this. I mean, it's going to be awesome when you rule from from there, right? And you're going to take us with you? Isn't that where this is all headed? Maybe they want him to reconsider. But then Jesus drops this bomb on his disciples in verse 2. 
Check out the Temple Mount, Lord. Isn't it awesome? And Jesus says, that old place, in verse 2, the expiration date is up on that place. That place is about to be destroyed stone by stone. Jesus said, not one stone here will be left on another, which will not be torn down. That whole, that whole all those buildings you see are going to be destroyed. That's Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple 37 years later. It's exactly what happens. The Romans come in and they destroy the temple mount brick by brick. They disassemble it and burn it. Uh, by the way, sometimes people get, you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, and when you see people standing at some wall, doesn't it look like there's stones one on top of another? Was Jesus wrong? No, the, the wailing wall that people stand by is more like a retaining wall for the dirt work so the temple could be built. And if you have a retaining wall in your yard, and I predicted that your house was going to be destroyed and your whole house burns down, but the retaining wall is still there, you wouldn't go, well, that guy didn't know what he was talking about. That's what happens. It's destroyed. All right, so here's where we're at so far. The disciples put together the last things they've just heard Jesus say. I'm not going back there as their protector until they accept me. And that whole temple's going to be destroyed. And what pops in the disciples' minds then is they think Jesus must be talking about the end of the world. Because if God's temple gets destroyed, that's got to be it. It's got to be the end. Now, is it unusual for scary things to happen in the world and people think that the, the world must be ending? Is that unusual or is that common? Has that been common over the last 2,000 years that something really scary happens and people think maybe the end is near? It's very common. And it's what the disciples assume. When Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, they assume the end of the world will be right behind it. They are wrong. And they are wrong. So in verse 3, they ask, Two natural questions to ask when you're thinking about the end of the world. The disciples come up to him privately. There he is sitting on the Mount of Olives. And they say, tell us, when will these things happen? See, they're not talking about just the destruction of the temple. They don't ask, when will that thing happen? When will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? When will be the end of the world? When's it going to happen? What will the clues be that will let us know it's about to happen? See their questions? Now the Olivet Discourse starts. The disciples think Jesus is talking about the end of the world and they want to know what we all at times want to know. When's it coming? And how will we know it's getting close? And all, all the rest of chapter 24 and 25, again, we're going to be six or eight weeks in this, is Jesus' response to those two questions. Now, before I say anything else about this, Jesus' longest speech or sermon about the end times, I want, I want you to hear this. No matter what Jesus says about the end of the world, there's a couple things that couldn't be clearer. First, 
Jesus says about 15 different ways we will never know the answer to the disciples' first question. They want to know, when is this going to happen? And Jesus says over and over and over, you're never going to know when. In fact, during this Olivet Discourse, Jesus will say this, of the day and the hour, no one knows. The angels in heaven don't know. The Son of God, that's me, Jesus, I don't know. Only the Father knows. So no matter what else we read over the next six or eight weeks, here's what we know it's not. It's not a list of clues as to the timing of the second coming of Christ. Jesus couldn't give clues as to the timing. You know why? He didn't know the timing. How do you give clues for something you don't know? Also, already in this book, Jesus has told us his opinion of people who look for signs. Is Jesus a fan of people who look for signs and omens and clues? No. Twice he has said, only a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs. Is that a compliment or not a compliment? I'm not quite clear. Okay. Whatever Jesus says, he's not given a list of clues to the timing of his second coming, and he doesn't want us focusing on that. I don't care how many books you read, the next blood, moon, lunar eclipse, any of that stuff. It's not, he doesn't give us a list of clues to look at, to try and discern when he's getting close. Now, last thing I need to say before we dive into today's passage, a little disclaimer here. There are, I think, two different ways to interpret just this first introductory passage that we're going to bite off today that are biblical, that are solid, people who love the Lord, love the Scriptures, and know way more about both than I do. Um, some of them take a different interpretation of what we're going to study today. Next week, I'm going to give you a general outline of like the timeline that's coming for the end of the world, what we know from all of Scripture. A, a big important part of that is a seven-year period that's coming sometime in the future called the Tribulation. Those of you who grew up in church or you're, you know some Bible prophecy, you've heard of the tribulation. That seven-year period, it's, it's promised in multiple places, can be divided in half into a three-and-a-half-year period at the beginning, a three-and-a-half-year period at the end. Next week, Jesus is going to start talking about the, the last half of the tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's distress. It's the worst time period the world has ever seen since the flood of Noah. And Jesus will compare it to the flood of Noah, in fact. And one way to understand what we're going to look through today is that Jesus is talking about the first half of the tribulation, that first three and a half year period where Antichrist has shown up and he seems like a good guy at first. I don't take that position. The only reason I say this, if you don't have any idea what I'm even talking about, you can ignore this part. I just don't, some of you may have an interpretation of this that I'll disagree with, and I want to tell you, you're in good company. If you think what Jesus is talking about today is about the first three and a half years of the tribulation, I, I'm not telling you to change your mind, even though that's not what I think Jesus is saying. End of disclaimer, we better dive in. The Olivet Discourse itself begins in verse 4, and I want you to pay special attention. 
to the first words Jesus says in response to the questions, when's the end coming and how will we know we are getting close? The first thing Jesus says is, watch out that no one deceives you. Beware so that no one misleads you. Here's the conversation. Hey, Jesus, when's the end coming? And what will the clues be that lets us know we're about there? And Jesus says, stop right there, boys. Focusing on questions like that will lead to you being deceived. That's not what I want you doing. Over the last 2,000 years, has anybody ever been deceived into thinking they know or someone else knows when Jesus is returning? Only like every six months for the last 2,000 years has this happened. The, the, the picture on your bulletin is an actual picture of an actual billboard. I wanted to put a different one up because it was the one when, when we lived in Kansas City. Uh, we used to drive by a billboard just like that one. Jesus is coming. Whatever the date, what's the date? Somebody read it. I don't have it. May something, right? It was J 2011. It was right before we moved out here. We used to drive by it and Rachel say, why should we even go to Imperial? Why are we making these plans? Because we moved here in June 1st and Jesus didn't come, right? Again, no matter what else Jesus says, he's not dropping a list of clues that he wants us to dig through and decipher. That stuff will lead to you getting deceived. So here's what Jesus does list. They want to know, when are you coming back? When's the end of the world and how will we know we're getting close? Jesus says you're going to get deceived if you think about stuff like that. And then Jesus gives a big list of scary stuff that, in my opinion, is going to happen from the time since after he ascends into heaven until the time uh, he takes the church to be with him in the air. It's not that I don't think, again, this stuff will happen during the first half of the tribulation. It absolutely will. It's just that it will have been happening cyclically for 2,000 years at least before that time. Because this is a reading of scary stuff that happens in the church age. So let's read through this and we'll talk about what Jesus wants us to learn. Again, have people made the mistake of thinking something really scary happens and then they think maybe this is the end of the world? Anybody ever done that? We did it in both world wars. We do it every time there's a storm, right? All right. Jesus says, here's some stuff that's going to happen before the end of the world. Many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will mislead many. The last 2,000 years, has there ever been anybody who claims to be from God, who claims to be the chosen one of God, who claims to be the Messiah? I'm not going to give you a big list, but there's been lots of them. I know, again, someday the Antichrist will come, but Jesus is talking about lots of them here. David Koresh was the last one of note. Anybody remember the Branch Davidian compound guy, Waco, Texas, claimed to be the Messiah? They'll, dislead, they'll mislead many. Jesus says you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Maybe you've read in the news lately of tensions increasing between our nation and Iran. Anybody hear that? It's a little scary. So what we should probably do is think, you see, Jesus said, 
war in the Middle East. He said that means he's getting close. Isn't that what he said? Oh, it's exactly the opposite of what he said. Look at, read it. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Make sure you're not afraid. This must happen, but the end is still to come. He says, it's not the end. We can't discern anything from the events of the world around us that gives us any clue as to the timing of the return of Jesus Christ. I want to zero in on something I have underlined here, and I want you to put this in the back of your mind because it's going to be important as we try to distill our main lesson out of this passage. There's only two behavioral commands in this passage we're going to study today. The first one is don't be deceived by looking at signs. Second one's right here. What's the, what does Jesus command us right here? Don't be what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know what Jesus wants from you from this passage? Don't be afraid. And I don't think that's just about wars and rumors of wars. I think this is the behavioral command that controls this whole passage. Don't be afraid. Now, More stuff that he says is going to happen that people will mistake for the end of the world. International conflict, verses 7 and 8. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Uh, Natural disasters, famines, earthquakes. You could add hurricanes, tsunamis. I've had this conversation multiple times. You know, an earthquake happens, a tsunami happens. Somebody comes and says, hey, pastor, what do you think about that? I mean, didn't Jesus say... When that stuff starts happening, this is the, no, no, he didn't. He says, all these things are just the beginning of birth pains. Don't mistake them for the end. Now, I personally have never had a labor pain, okay? Here's why. Before we got married, Rachel and I decided she would have the babies and I would change the oil in our cars. I thought that was fair. I thought that was pretty good. They both involve fluid. Never mind. I'm not going to. Um, the, uh, no, what are labor pains? What are birth pains? They are, ex- I've, I've heard, they're extremely painful, painful to the point of scariness. Moms, any of you think, I'm going to die if this does not stop soon. They're scary. They're painful. They get worse and worse and worse until new life begins and the pain goes away until they turn two and the pain returns with a vengeance. No, it's not the point. Jesus says, here's what's going to happen for the next 2,000 however many years. Things are going to get worse. You think they're bad now? I got bad news. They're going to get worse and worse and worse until it stops getting worse and new life begins. You want to know how long we've been in the birth pains? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, we know, Paul says, that the whole of creation has been groaning already as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The Apostle Paul was a contemporary of Jesus Christ So he he wrote this around the year 60, 70 AD, right in there. And he said, 
the, child, the, the, the pains of childbirth have already been happening. And they're going to get worse. So don't be deceived into thinking it can't possibly get worse. It can always get worse. That's been just stuff for the world. Now Jesus gets specific about, I believe, his church. In verses 9 through 11, um, or 9 through 12, here's what's going to happen specifically to his followers. They, the rest of the world, will hand you, followers of me, over to be persecuted. They're going to kill some of you. You're going to be hated by all the nations because of my name. Has that been happening for 2,000 years? Afraid so. The Romans fed Christians to the lions, lit some of them on fire. In the Middle Ages, we were still burning Christians at the stake. False, te- false teachings misleading and deceiving people. Is that, has that been going on? Is it still going on? Yes. Um, many will be led into sin. They'll betray one another and hate one another. Any conflicts among Christians in the last 2,000 years? Leading Christian to hate Christian? Yeah. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Then look at verse 12 here. And because lawlessness will increase, increase so much, the love of most will grow cold. That's a sad verse in your Bible right there. You know what I think Jesus was predicting right there? Here's what he's saying. Boys, it's going to get so hard to follow me that people who love me are going to let that love for me grow cold and they're going to follow the world so that they're not persecuted for as a Christian. Is, is that happening? Has it been happening? It's going to continue to happen. Jesus says, God's law, God's idea of what is right and what is wrong. It's so exclusive, it's so offensive that it's going to get harder and harder for people to hang in there as a follower of Jesus. And instead of hanging in there and being persecuted for it, they'll do something easier. It's a relatively new concept in America, but boy, is it bad right now as we call evil good and good evil. Why? To escape persecution. Because it's easier. So there's the list of things that Jesus said is coming. I don't think there's a single clue in there that will let us know about the timing of his return. And he ends with two promises for those of us who follow Jesus and love Jesus in, in scary times, and here's where we're getting close to an actual main idea and lesson. Jesus just said, most people are going to let their love grow cold. Most people are going to pretend they're not followers of me to escape the pain of following me. Then he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That can be scary for another reason. 
that can sound like the one who, who won't endure, the one who chickens out, doesn't get to go to heaven when he or she dies. I don't believe it's what Jesus is saying. This isn't a passage about how to get to heaven. You know how we know? Jesus doesn't tell anybody what to believe. Jesus hasn't switched to salvation by works here. Here's what he's saying. Remind me, I I asked you to put something in the back of your mind a few verses ago. It was the behavioral command of this passage. Does anybody remember what it is? Say it out loud. You'll impress the person next to you. What is it? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, let me ask you this. How can Jesus possibly say that with a straight face given the list he just gave? Don't be afraid. Now, they're going to kill some of you. I mean, if if you were a first century Christian and you were supposed to come out of this door and the lions were going to come out of that door, would you be afraid? Because I would. If you were in an earthquake, would you be afraid? Because I would. That's why I live in Nebraska. There's There's a whole list of really scary stuff. And his command is, don't be afraid. What are you, serious? Here's what Jesus is saying. As a Christian, we always have a choice what we are controlled by. Our fear in scary times or our what? Or our faith. Now check this out. Jesus is the one who endures, the one who doesn't chicken out, the one who doesn't let his or her love grow cold, the one who doesn't hate fellow Christians, the one who doesn't do all that stuff, will be saved. That's passive voice. You know what that means? It means someone else does the action. If I were drowning in Lake Enders and I will be saved, does that mean I will save myself or does somebody else have to come along and save me if I will be saved? It means I'll be saved by someone else. Here's the difference between living by fear and living by faith. In scary times, the faithful Christian does what is right, what I'm called to do. I'm faithful to my purpose, and I trust. I know I will be saved, even if I'm saved through my death. They might burn me at the stake. They might feed me to the lions. They might boil me in oil. but I will be saved. When we do the other side, when we chicken out, when we succumb to our fear, guess what? Guess why Christians for the last 2,000 years have let their love grow cold? When we do that, we're trying to save ourselves. Save ourselves from what? From persecution, from the pain. Uh, let me think of a scary example. World War II, you live, you're a Christian, you live in Germany. There's a nice Jewish family down the road. And you know what's coming for them. The Lord puts on your heart, you should help that Jewish family. If you don't, why wouldn't you? Because they'll kill me if they catch me, right? So this is an extreme example. Very, very difficult decision. I'm not saying I would have made the decision, but I can either decide in a moment like that, I can save myself 
or I can do what the Lord has called me to do knowing I will be saved. Which will it be? Smaller example. You have an opportunity to witness. You have an opportunity to be different. You have an opportunity to whatever it is in your life, but the pressure will be on. The pressure will be great. Guess what choice you have? Do I want to try and save myself from the shame, from the embarrassment, from being made fun of, from losing friends? Or do I want to do what is right and what is faithful and just believing I will be saved? History lesson. You tell me. Over the last 2,000 years, when Christians have done that well, when Christians, even though the lions are going to come out of that door, even though they're going to burn me at the stake if, unless I deny Christ, and I'm going to hide these Jews, I'm going to do whatever in the history of the church, when people have been faithful in the faiths of persecution, what has happened with the church and the gospel? It has, you want to know? I'll show you. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. In a matter of weeks from this speech and this sermon, in a few days, Jesus will be killed, he'll be buried. He'll rise again. A few weeks later, he'll get this same group of guys back together with some of their friends. One of them will be dead by then, the betrayer. He'll get them back together on another hill. And here's how the book of Matthew ends. I want you guys to go into all the earth and do what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he's already promised, I will build my church. Now, if you were a Galilean fisherman, And the God of the universe just said, I want you to take this gospel through the whole world. Would you have some questions? Would you want to know, how on earth do you expect that to happen? You know how it happens? Jesus just told him. If you are just faithful, if you go and you are faithful, especially When the world and the devil turns up the heat, watch what will happen to my church. Jesus promised to build his church. Who promised to build the church? Jesus. I will build my church and, somebody finish the verse for me. I will build my church and the gates of hell, what? Will not overpower it, will not overcome it. You know what Jesus listed for us today? Hell's best shots at defeating the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you don't let your love grow cold, when hell takes its best shot, that's how I'll build my church. We have the mindset of Micah at the end of his book. He said, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I will wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Dude, here's the attitude. When you're the one being ridiculed, made fun of, when you're different, when you're left out, when whatever it is, do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I have the promise. 
If I am faithful, I will be saved. Last thing, we'll land the plane here. If you want to see the main idea, if you have your Bible open, here's how you make the main idea of this passage stick out. Every place Jesus says the word many or most, underline that. And then in verse 13, where Jesus says the word one, circle that. And now here's the question this passage asks us. Lord, when are you coming back? And how will we know we're getting close? Jesus says, stop, don't think about that stuff. That's not your job. That will get you deceived. What I want you to know, do you want to be the many, the many, the many, the many, the many, the most, or the one? Here's your job, Christian. I can't tell you when I'm coming back. You won't know when I'm coming back. But here's what I can tell you. Many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they're going to mislead many. Do you want to be one of the misled? No, I don't want to be that. They're going to hand you over to be persecuted. They're going to kill you. You're going to be hated by all the nations in my name. Verse 10, many are going to be led into sin. They're going to betray one another and hate one another. Do you want to be one of the many that are like that? No, I don't want to be like that, Lord. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many because lawlessness will increase so much. The love of most will grow cold. Do you want to be like, do you want to be the many who are misled, the many who hate, the many who, are, who uh, fall into sin, the most whose love grow cold? Or do you want to be the one? Do you want to be one of the ones who endures the best shots hell can throw at him or throw at her with the faith that says, I know I will be saved. You can be the many, the many, the many, the most, or the one. Jesus says, be the one. Just be the one. And watch what I will do for my church in this gospel. Amen? Pray with me. Almighty God, I thank you for your promise to build your church, even to the outermost parts of the earth, and here we are. It doesn't get much further away from Jerusalem than Imperial Nebraska. And here in the outermost parts of the earth, you are still continuing to save people, even though hell continues to take its best shots at taking away our witness and making us ineffective at convincing us we should be controlled by our fear instead of controlled by our faith. Lord, we don't want to be the many who fall into sin. We don't want to be the many who are deceived. We don't want to be the most whose love grows cold. We want to be the ones who hang in there for Jesus Christ, faithful till the end, dependent upon your promise to save us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.